Chapter One of My Southern Home, or The South and Its People. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. My Southern Home, or The South and Its People, by William Wells Brown. Preface. No attempt has been made to create heroes or heroines, or to appeal to the imagination or the heart. The earlier incidents were written out from the author's recollections. The later sketches here given are the results of recent visits to the South, where the incidents were jotted down at the time of their occurrence, or as they fell from the lips of the narrators and in their own unadorned dialect. Boston, May 1880 Chapter 1 Ten miles north of the city of St. Louis, in the state of Missouri, forty years ago, on a pleasant plain, sloping off toward a murmuring stream, stood a large frame house, two stories high. In front was a beautiful lake, and in the rear an old orchard filled with apple, peach, pear, and plum trees, with boughs untrimmed, all bearing indifferent fruit. The mansion was surrounded with piazzas, covered with grapevines, clematis, and passion flowers. The pride of China mixed its oriental-looking foliage with the majestic magnolia, and the air was redolent with the fragrance of buds peeping out of every nook, and nodding upon you with a most unexpected welcome. The tasteful hand of art which shows itself in the grounds of European and New England villas was not seen there, but the lavish beauty and harmonious disorder of nature was permitted to take its own course, and exhibited a want of taste so commonly witnessed in the sunny south. The killing effects of tobacco plant upon the lands of Poplar Farm was to be seen in the rank growth of the briar, the thistle, the burdock, and the jimson weed, showing themselves wherever the strong arm of the bondman had not kept them down. Dr. Gaines, the proprietor of Poplar Farm, was a good-humoured, sunny-sided old gentleman who, always feeling happy himself, wanted everybody to enjoy the same blessing. Unfortunately for him, the doctor had been born and brought up in Virginia, raised in a family claiming to be of the F.V.'s, but in reality was comparatively poor. Marrying Mrs. Sarah Scott Pepper, an accomplished widow lady of medium fortune, Dr. Gaines emigrated to Missouri, where he became a leading man in his locality. Deeply imbued with religious feeling of the Calvinistic school, well-versed in the scriptures, and having an abiding faith in the power of the gospel to regenerate the world, the doctor took great pleasure in presenting his views wherever his duties called him. As a physician, he did not rank very high, for it was currently reported and generally believed that the father, finding his son unfit for mercantile business or the law, determined to make him either a clergyman or a physician. Mr. Gaines, Sr., being somewhat superstitious, resolved not to settle the question too rashly in regard to the son's profession, therefore, it is said, flipped a cent, feeling that heads or tails would be a better omen than his own judgment in the matter. Fortunately for the cause of religion, the head turned up in favor of the medical profession. Nevertheless, 
the son often said that he believed god had destined him for the sacred calling and devoted much of his time in exhorting his neighbors to seek repentance most planters in our section cared but little about the religious training of their slaves regarding them as they did their cattle an investment the return of which was only to be considered in dollars and cents not so however with dr john gaines for he took special pride in looking after the spiritual welfare of his slaves having them all in the great house at family worship night and morning on sabbath mornings reading of the scriptures and explaining the same generally occupied from one to two hours and often till half of the negroes present were fast asleep the white members of the family did not take as kindly to the religious teaching of the doctor as did the blacks for his christian zeal i had the greatest respect for i always regarded him as a truly pious and conscientious man willing at all times to give of his means the needful in spreading the gospel mrs sarah gaines was a lady of considerable merit well educated and of undoubted piety if she did not join heartily in her husband's religious enthusiasm it was not for want of deep and genuine christian feeling but from the idea that he was of more humble origin than herself and therefore was not a capable instructor this difference in birth this difference in antecedents does much in the south to disturb family relations wherever it exists and mrs gaines when wishing to show her contempt for the doctor's opinions would allude to her own parentage and birth in comparison to her husband's thus once when they were having a family jar she with tears streaming down her cheeks and wringing her hands said my mother told me that i was a fool to marry a man so much beneath me one so much my inferior in society and now you show it by hectoring and aggravating me all you can but never mind i thank the lord that he has given me religion and grace to stand it never mind one of these days the lord will make up his jewels take me home to glory out of your sight and then i'll be devilish glad of it these scenes of unpleasantness however were not of everyday occurrence and therefore the great house at the poplar farm may be considered as having a happy family slave children with almost an alabaster complexion straight hair and blue eyes whose mothers were jet black or brown were often a great source of annoyance in the southern household and especially to the mistress of the mansion billy a quadroon of eight or nine years was amongst the young slaves in the doctor's house then being trained up for a servant anyone taking a hasty glance at the lad would never suspect that a drop of negro blood coursed through his blue veins a gentleman whose acquaintance dr gaines had made but who knew nothing of the latter's family relations called at the house in the doctor's absence mrs gaines received the stranger and asked him to be seated and remained till the host's return while thus waiting the boy billy had occasion to pass through the room the stranger presuming the lad to be a son of the doctor exclaimed how do you do and turning to the lady said how much he looks like his father i should have known it was the doctor's son if i had met him in mexico with flushed countenance and excited voice mrs gaines informed the gentleman that the little fellow was only a slave and nothing more 
After the stranger's departure, Billy was seen pulling up grass in the garden, with bare head, neck, and shoulders, while the rays of the burning sun appeared to melt the child. This process was repeated every few days for the purpose of giving the slave the color that nature had refused it, and yet Mrs. Gaines was not considered a cruel woman. Indeed, she was regarded as a kind, feeling mistress. Billy, however, a few days later, experienced a roasting far more severe than the one he had got in the sun. The morning was cool, and the breakfast table was spread near the fireplace, where a newly built fire was blazing up. Mrs. Gaines, being seated near enough to feel very sensibly the increasing flames, ordered Billy to stand before her. The lad at once complied. His thin clothing, giving him but little protection from the fire, the boy soon began to make up faces, and to twist and move about, showing evident signs of suffering. "'What are you wriggling about for?' asked the mistress. "'It burns me,' replied the lad. "'Turn around, then,' said the mistress, and the slave commenced turning around, keeping it up till the lady arose from the table. Billy, however, was not entirely without his crumbs of comfort. It was his duty to bring the hot biscuit from the kitchen to the great house table while the whites were at meal. The boy would often watch his opportunity, take a cake from the plate, and conceal it in his pocket till breakfast was over, and then enjoy his stolen gain. One morning, Mrs. Gaines, observing that the boy kept moving about the room, after bringing in the cakes, and also seeing the little fellow's pocket sticking out rather largely, and presuming that there was something hot there, said, "'Come here!' The lad came up. She pressed her hand against the hot pocket, which caused the boy to jump back. Again the mistress repeated, "'Come here!' and with the same result. This, of course, set the whole room, servants and all, in a roar. Again and again the boy was ordered to come up, which he did, each time jumping back until the heat of the biscuit was exhausted, and then he was made to take it out and throw it into the yard, where the geese seized it and held a carnival over it. Billy was heartily laughed at by his companions in the kitchen and the quarters, and the large blister caused by the hot biscuit created merriment among the slaves rather than sympathy for the lad. Mrs. Gaines being absent from home one day and the rest of the family out of the house, Billy commenced playing with the shotgun, which stood in the corner of the room and which the boy supposed was unloaded. Upon a corner shelf, just above the gun, stood a bandbox, in which was neatly laid away all of Mrs. Gaines' caps and cuffs, which, in those days, were in great use. The gun, having the flint lock, the boy amused himself with bringing down the hammer and striking fire. By this action, powder was jarred into the pan, and the gun, which was heavily charged with shot, was discharged, the contents passing through bandbox of caps, cutting them literally to pieces, and scattering them over the floor. Billy gathered up the fragments, put them in the box, and placed it upon the shelf, he alone aware of the accident. A few days later, and Mrs. Gaines was expecting company. She called to Hannah to get her a clean cap. The servant, in attempting to take down box, exclaimed, "'Law, missus, if the rats ain't been at these caps and cut em all to pieces, just look here!' 
with a degree of amazement not easily described, the mistress beheld the fragments as they were emptied out upon the floor. Just then a new idea struck Hannah, and she said, I lay anything that gun has been shooting off. Where is Billy? Where is Billy? exclaimed the mistress. Where's Billy? echoed Hannah. Fearing that the lady would go into convulsions, I hastened out to look for the boy, but he was nowhere to be found. I returned only to find her weeping and wringing her hands, exclaiming, Oh, I am ruined, I am ruined. The company's coming, and not a clean cap about the house. Oh, what shall I do? What shall I do? I tried to comfort her by suggesting that the servants might get one ready in time. Billy soon made his appearance, and looked on with wonderment, and when asked how he came to shoot off the gun, declared that he knew nothing about it. And if the gun went off, it was of its own accord. However, the boy admitted the snapping of the lock or trigger. A light whipping was all he got, and for which he was well repaid by having an opportunity of telling how the caps flew about the room when the gun went off. Relating the event some time after in the quarters, he said, I golly, you had ought to seen them caps fly, and the dust and smoke in the room. I thought a judgment day had come, sure enough. On the arrival of the company, Mrs. Gaines made a very presentable appearance, although the caps and laces had been destroyed. One of the visitors on this occasion was a young Mr. Sarpee of St. Louis, who, although above twenty-one years of age, had never seen anything of country life, and therefore was very anxious to remain overnight and go on a coon hunt. Dr. Gaines, being lame, could not accompany the gentleman, but sent Ike, Cato, and Sam, three of the most expert coon hunters on the farm. Night came, and off went the young man and the boys on the coon hunt. The dog scented game, after being about half an hour in the woods, to the great delight of Mr. Sarpee, who was armed with a double-barreled pistol, which, he said, he carried both to protect himself and to shoot the coon. The halting of the boys and the quick, sharp bark of the dogs announced that the game was treed, and the gentleman from the city pressed forward with fond expectation of seeing the coon and using his pistol. However, the boys soon raised the cry of, Polecat! Polecat! Get out the way! And at the same time, retreating as if they were afraid of an attack from the animal. Not so with Mr. Sarpee. He stood his ground, with pistol in hand, waiting to get a sight of the game. He was not long in suspense, for the white and black spotted creature soon made its appearance, at which the city gentleman opened fire upon the skunk, which attack was immediately answered by the animal, and in a manner that caused the young man to wish that he, too, had retreated with the boys. Such an odor he had never before inhaled, and, what was worse, his face, head, hands, and clothing was covered with the cause of the smell, and the gentleman at once said, "'Come, let's go home. I've got enough of coon hunting.' But didn't the boys enjoy the fun? The return of the party home was the signal for a hearty laugh and all at the expense of the city gentleman. So great and disagreeable was the smell that the young man had to go to the barn where his clothing was removed, 
and he submitted to the process of washing by the servants. Soap, scrubbing brushes, towels, indeed everything was brought into requisition, but all to no purpose. The skunk smell was there, and was likely to remain. Both family and visitors were at the breakfast table the next morning, except Mr. Sarpee. He was still in the barn, where he had slept the previous night. Nor did there seem to be any hope that he would be able to visit the house, for the smell was intolerable. The substitution of a suit of the doctor's clothes for his own failed to remedy the odor. Dinky the conjurer was called in. He looked the young man over, shook his head in a knowing manner, and said it was a big job. Mr. Sarpee took out a Mexican silver dollar, handed it to the old negro, and told him to do his best. Dinky smiled, and he thought that he could remove the smell. His remedy was to dig a pit in the ground large enough to hold the man, put him in it, and cover him over with fresh earth. Consequently, Mr. Sarpee was, after removing his entire clothing, buried, all except his head, while his clothing was served in the same manner. A servant held an umbrella over the unhappy man, and fanned him during the eight hours that he was there. Taken out of the pit at six o'clock in the evening, all joined with Dinky in the belief that Mr. Sarpee smelt sweeter than when interred in the morning. Still, the smell of the polecat was there. Five hours longer in the pit the following day, with a rub-down by Dinky with his goofer, fitted the young man for a return home to the city. I never heard that Mr. Sarpee ever again joined in a coon hunt. No description of mine, however, can give anything like a correct idea of the great merriment of the entire slave population on Poplar Farm caused by the coon hunt. Even Uncle Ned, the old superannuated slave who seldom went beyond the confines of his own cabin, hobbled out on this occasion to take a look at the gentleman from the city, while buried in the pit. At night, in the quarters, the slaves had a merry time over the coon hunt. "'I golly, but didn't a polecat give him a big dose?' said Ike. "'But how Mr. Sarpee did talk French to himself when the old coon peppered him,' remarked Cato. "'He won't go coon hunting again soon, I bet you,' said Sam. "'The coon hunt and a gemmin from the city was the talk for many days.'" End of chapter 1 Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista